Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, and our guest today is Stuart Brotman. He is a professor of media management and law at the University of Tennessee and the author of a new book of interviews, The First Amendment Lives On, Conversations Commemorating Hugh M. Hefner's Legacy of Enduring Free Speech and Free Press Values, trying to get the full book in frame. Stuart, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to be here, Nico. It's kind of hard to believe it, but Hugh Hefner died in 2017, so students who are in college right now weren't in college when he died, unless they're a six-year senior, perhaps, or fifth-year senior, perhaps. Uh, Who was Hugh Hefner, and why is he important to the First Amendment? Hugh Hefner was one of the great publishing entrepreneurs of the 20th century. He started Playboy magazine in the 1950s at a time when it wasn't all that easy to just start a magazine from scratch, and he did that by purchasing the rights to a new photo of Marilyn Monroe, and then essentially having that as part of the magazine. And the magazine just took off like wildfire after that. And so he built an empire around the magazine, not just in terms of publishing, but in terms of licensing product and starting into the leisure business. But in terms of the First Amendment, clearly the core of understanding a little bit about him is his publishing experience and all of his publishing activities. Uh, But well before that, just as a high school journalist and a college journalist, he was very committed to this idea of free speech and free press. And in fact, when he started Playboy magazine, many of those principles became incorporated into the magazine itself. Well, yeah, he's a guy publishing you know, before the sexual revolution, nude photos of women in a general consumption magazine. So I imagine public authorities weren't too pleased. There's moral outrage, perhaps, in some corners of the country to what he was trying to do. So he was a man maybe ahead of his time and ahead of where the First Amendment or free speech values really were in the country at the time, I suspect. Absolutely. Well, remember, this is about 1953 or so. So We are in the McCarthy era, which is an era in the United States where people were being investigated for potential ties to communism. We were in a post-war environment, the 1950s, where there was a, a good deal of repression of thinking about new ideas or new thoughts. And so we we had an environment which was very difficult. We also had a legal environment because at that at that point the Supreme Court had really not litigated a lot of the major cases that we have today, which would support the First Amendment in a much more robust way. Have you ever watched the documentary? Calling it a documentary isn't really right because it's much more than that. But on Amazon called American Playboy, the Hugh Hefner story. I have, yes. Yeah, I thought that was a fantastic kind of encapsulation of Hugh Hefner and his story. And one of the things that really revealed for me was 
how much of a businessman he was and astute business senses he brought to the Playboy empire. You know, I am in my early to mid thirties. So the Hugh Hefner I knew was the Hugh Hefner of the nineties and two thousands, the Playboy mansion, the, uh, reality television show. So almost kind of a bigger than life persona, mm-hmm. not the man who built from scratch at his kitchen table, essentially a, a publishing empire, not a man who wa- holds the Guinness book of world records. And this is something that I learned from your book for having the largest scrapbook collection in the world. He had 3000 personal scrapbooks. You don't think of this guy who has a playboy mansion as being such an astute businessman, a scrapbooker. There's, it, it, there's just, there's a disconnect in my mind between Hugh Hefner, the persona and Hugh Hefner, the person. And I know there's probably some intersections as well, but you didn't actually know him right before you got cl- access to his scrapbook collection. Uh, not only didn't I know him, I never had any contact with him either through a conversation or email or text or anything. So to, to that extent, uh, he was somewhat of a blank slate. Obviously, I knew him in terms of his public reputation, but was so what was so interesting in terms of having access to these 3,000 scrapbooks was essentially being able to discover his personal side. And every Saturday, he basically spent virtually all day working on his scrapbooks. And so that's how over the years and the scrapbooks were developed over 75 years. So he literally started this as a child and chronicled not just his business life. Obviously, as a child, he wasn't in business, but really captured what he was thinking about and what he was experiencing in real time. So in the digital age today, we do that all through our devices. He did that through his scrapbooks. And I always refer to the scrapbooks as his hard drive, because when you get to look at the scrapbooks, you get to experience what he was thinking and feeling and interacting with at the time it took place. And he also wrote personally all of the captions So he had a typewriter and they were all done in the same font, but that was part of his scrapbooking. Uh, And he also had a staff that worked on it. So what happened was after uh, he basically pulled the materials he wanted in his scrapbook, they would be put in uh, sort of a nice uh, book and they would uh, be Uh, the captions would be inserted. So the staff worked on it and then they were put in a a library in the Playboy Mansion. And so there were 3000 of these in a giant library. There was a staff that worked on these, but he really spent his Saturdays, every Saturday scrapbooking. And that, that was just an extraordinary experience. Uh, I'm, I'm the only person outside of uh, the staff and his family who's ever had access to these complete scrapbooks. So he, he, he was doing this up until very close to when he passed away. And how did you get access to those scrapbooks? Like why you who has never met him, you know, who did you have a prior interest that might've piqued, for example, the estate or Christy Hefner's interest in having you kind of investigate them and figure out what's in there? Uh, yes, well, I, I had known Christy a little bit, and I had approached her 
actually prior to her father's passing, I was very interested in meeting him. He was, as I said, one of these legendary figures of the 20th century. And he was obviously moving into very old age. And that was the type of person, if I had a checklist of people that I would like to meet and talk to, he would certainly be right at the top of the checklist. So uh, originally I had tried to get a meeting with him and then to be able to see the scrapbooks at the mansion. Uh, he then became very ill. That never worked out. And the reason is because uh, I was once upon a time president of the uh, Museum of Television and Radio in New York City and Los Angeles. And I oversaw one of the great archives in television and radio programming. And so I have this deep history in being able to sort of go into archives and trying to understand what's happening in the archive. Uh, the year before I began discussing this with Christy, I'd been out in Silicon Valley and at Stanford, they have the internet archives where all of the original material of internet pioneers is. And I was literally reading, uh, you know, notes from Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and a variety of other people. So the aspect of dealing firsthand with archives is something I've dealt with all my life. Uh, I had a suspicion with 3000 scrapbooks, there might be something really interesting in there, although I didn't know necessarily what was going to be in there. And so uh, I basically asked Christy and the uh, Hefner Foundation whether or not I could have access and said, I'll come back and tell you if I find something interesting, which might lead to a book or some other type of project. And that's how everything got started. Well, what was the most interesting thing you found in there? Or what was the most interesting couple of things you found in there? Uh, well, one is that he taught and he was a teacher for uh, 20 years at the University of Southern California uh, School of Cinematic Arts, which is one of the great film schools, if not the greatest film school in the United States. And it turns out that there was a film censorship class that was taught by Rick Jewell, who's one of the people in the book, and Drew Casper, his uh, co-teacher. And every year they would bring Hef in to the class to close the class with a final lecture and discussion. And he literally never missed a class in those 20 years. There's a story that Rick tells in the book where Hef was going to receive an award in London, a Lifetime Achievement Award, and it conflicted with the class. And so he basically decided that between those two options, he would go to the class. Uh, and then the classes were totally free and open. So obviously there were students who could be highly critical of him. They could challenge him. It was not a traditional lecture. He basically said, everything is fair game. And apparently they were just extremely uh, rich and detailed classes that went on for 20 years. So that was one thing. And there are no transcripts. There are no recordings of those classes. So literally the only way you could find out about them as I did was to have a discussion with Rick Jewell, who was the co-professor with Hef at these classes. That was just an amazing discovery. That's one of the more interesting interviews in your book is with Rick Jewell. And one of the things that I found fascinating was, as you say, the 
there were no questions that were off limits. And he started doing these classes, I intuit from the book, during the feminist backlash to Playboy. And he took questions from feminists in the class, critical, presumably, of his work, it sounds like. And he was not afraid to answer them. Uh, Rick talks about how that backlash sort of subsided, and he, he missed it, it sounds like, uh, in the later years that Hef was teaching the course. But uh, he wasn't afraid of controversy. He wasn't afraid of re- responding as critics. The other thing I found interesting was that he didn't come into the class eager to teach it. Uh, in fact, Rick, it sounds like, asked him to teach the course, and he said no initially. And then Rick tried a different tactic where he had his students ask him to teach the course, or a lesson in the course, I should say. And that's what prompted him to say yes. And from there on out, as you know, he never missed a class, missed award ceremonies in different countries, presumably big events that one would like to attend so that he wouldn't miss his class. And it's, uh, you know, we should say when we talk about his class, he had reached out or someone on his behalf, if I'm not mistaken, reached out to the University of Southern California to see if they had a course on censorship within their cinema arts program. And it sounds like at one point they did, but it had no longer been taught or no, was no longer in the course catalog. And he asked if they would revive it uh, and he would provide the funding to do so. And, and he did. Do you know if that course is still being taught? It is. It is uh, now being revived because Professor Jewell has taken emeritus status. But in fact, uh, I will be going out next fall to be part of that class to talk about some of the issues in the book. Dean Daly from the USC Cinema uh, School has invited me out there and it's going to be a great pleasure to essentially be part of that enterprise as well. The other interesting aspect about that particular class is that it was not a media event. It was totally personal. It was not connected to Playboy. There were no photographers. There was no PR agents. He basically just showed up at the class by himself and left by himself. And so it was very much a personal activity. And that's really, I think, the the beauty and the interest in these scrapbooks, because you got to see a lot more of the inner workings of a person as opposed to what their public image or whether their or their business success was. What was Hef's interest in cinema, American cinema and censorship in particular and within cinema? Well, he he grew up in the great era of the movies. And like a lot of kids, uh, he went to the movies a lot. Movies were, I think, 25 cents at that point. Uh, There were uh, matinees. There were double features. And so a lot of his love of uh, beauty and art and everything else was gained through the movies. And so he always loved that. He had a full theater in the mansion. And he had regular movie nights and people would just come and watch movies. He had it like a movie theater. He had popcorn and refreshments. And that apparently was one of the great activities. Uh, But not only did he enjoy movies, he really loved the history of movies. And he also, of course, experienced that era in the movies when there was a good deal of censorship. When, for example, you could not show married couples sleeping in the same bed. There was a lot of, obviously, uh, censorship or self-censorship in terms of the 
movie code period when essentially producers didn't want to violate the code. So they decided they would pull back. And I think there's a pretty interesting story Rick tells in the book about Howard Hughes, because Howard Hughes was a great maverick. And he really decided to sort of push the envelope in terms of what he could get away with in the movies. And of course, later on, we had the development of the movie rating system. So this was really a lifelong interest. And I think it, again, goes back to childhood and this love of an activity. And I think he probably was doing this on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, you know, right after working on his scrapbook. So they were all tied together. It's just funny to think about this American playboy, as the Amazon series terms him, uh, spending his weekends scrapbooking rather than hanging out in the grotto or at the pool. (laughs) He's just sitting alone scrapbooking, which is is an image you don't often think of when you think of Hugh Hefner. Uh, No, uh, and and these scrapbooks are so detailed. And so you could literally imagine how long it would take because basically what he would do apparently was to have loads of clippings done during the week for him. And they were then brought into him when he began to scrapbook on Saturdays to decide what was going to go in there and also what was the order they were going to go into and then writing the captions for each of those. So all of that was quite meticulous. And, and the things that he included in his scrapbook, was there any sort of rhyme or reason to it? Was there it pretty much everything in his life? Was it Did it relate to family, personal goings-on, or was it primarily related to his business and passions? Uh, there, it was not a personal scrapbook in the sense that you don't get to see pictures of his family at birthday oh. events and that, that yeah. sort of thing. But clearly, uh, I think you said it correctly, which is the idea of not just business, but passions. And clearly, there's a lot also in there uh, related to his idea as he began to develop uh, major sections of the magazine. For example, the Playboy interview. So the Playboy interview to him was really a centerpiece of the magazine. And in many ways, it was an instrument or a vehicle for him to essentially have the First Amendment work in a magazine by having a very diverse group of people invited to be interviewed. And I don't think any other publication or any other media outlet has ever had that level of diversity in terms of political opinion, religious opinion, ideology. I mean, they had the full range. And the idea behind the Playboy interview was not just to have a journalistic interview, was not just to have a journalist come in and ask questions. It was to essentially have a very broad and deep conversation. And that's what I try to replicate in the book. And it started in 1962 with Miles Davis, the great jazz musician. And the first person who did the interview was Alex Haley, who turned out to be the author of Roots later on and one of the great journalist. No, he wasn't a journalist. He was really a a novelist. And over the years, a number of other people like that became the interviewers, people like Norman Mailer. So it's just an extraordinary commitment to having a robust diversity of viewpoints in a magazine. And if you tick off the 
types of people that were interviewed. It's just an amazing array of people. Well, yeah, if you look at it and you note some of these people in the introduction to your book, you got Jimmy Hoffa, you got Jimmy Carter, you got Clint Eastwood, William F. Buckley. You've even got people like George Lincoln Rockwell, the American Nazi Party founder, and George Wallace, you know, the Southern segregationist. Now, interviews presumably aren't new, but the style that I'm assuming distinguished this one and sort of made it a place where people wanted to be, right, if you were a celebrity or you were trying to sell something, was, as you say, how in-depth it was, how wide in scope it was, the astuteness of the questions, I'm presuming. Yes, and also the amount of research that went on before the interview. So in order to do one of these interviews, you basically had to read or understand everything about the person before you went into the interview. And the interviews were not done with notes. And so they were conversations in the way that we're having a conversation. And so that that made them extremely unique because certainly for magazines, they typically just had the classic question and answer where a journalist would develop a few questions and come in and essentially not have a conversation, but essentially try to get certain answers from the person who was being interviewed. These were really more conversations. And uh, they were conversations that were really meant to open up the person's head, what I call the head and the heart. So you got to see what these people were thinking and what these people were feeling. Of course, the most famous is probably the Jimmy Carter interview when he was a presidential candidate because there was that famous line where he was asked about his interest in other women. And he said, obviously he was married, continues to be married, but said that he had lust in his heart. And that was really a shocking comment at the time to hear from a presidential candidate. And that became somewhat legendary, but I think it also sort of symbolizes how deep these conversations were so that the people who were having these conversations felt comfortable enough to open up their head and their heart. Today, if you were to have someone like George Wallace or George Lincoln Rockwell sit down for an interview with a major publication, the criticism would be that you're platforming bigots or you're giving a platform to retrograde or offensive viewpoints. Uh, You've actually seen some journalistic outlets shy away from doing that for precisely that reason and that criticism. Was their criticism of that kind for Playboy, for Hefner and the week uh, and the weekend, and I should <laughs> about to say the weekend interview. That's what the Wall Street Journal does, the Playboy interview. Or is that really a new phenomenon? And how does that diverge from the ethos that Hugh Hefner was trying to instill with his Playboy interview? I think it's a newer phenomenon. Obviously, it relates to social media because you know the blowback that people get now primarily would be on social media. They they were actually very well received because they were considered an art form and they are an art form. And I think the only publication that has really picked up on it since uh, is Rolling Stone. And I think the people at Rolling Stone will tell you that they look back on the art form and have tried to adapt it a little bit for their audience. So, So no, it was not controversial. I think what was surprising to a lot of people is 
the level of diversity that was put in there because it was not just people who believed in what he believed in or supported the magazine. There were people who were very critical of what was being promoted in the magazine, and they were certainly part of it as well. I mean, for example, Jermaine Greer and Betty Friedan and Camille Paglia, they were all in the magazine. And um, Anita Bryan, who was at the time probably one of the most prominent anti-gay activists, she was given a platform as well. So the idea that we always talk about in terms of a marketplace of ideas, this is something that he really felt deeply and that's why the interview was essentially incorporated into the magazine. They are, are so legendary at this point. There were books over the years that were compiled, the best of interviews. They're still available. And I would encourage anyone who wants to go back and read some of these. They're really quite extraordinary pieces. I call them literature. And as I began to work on the book, I realized it was important for me to be able to replicate the style of those conversations as I went out and began to have the conversations with the people in the book. Yeah, so the book is not a biography of Hugh Hefner, uh, but it is a attempt to replicate his Playboy interviews on the topic of free expression with people who you term the First Amendment's greatest generation. So these people include some of whom have been guests on this show before Jeff Stone, Floyd Abrams, Nadine Strawson, Burt Newborn, David Cole, Lucy Dalglish, excuse me, <laughs> Bob Corn Revere and Rick Jewell, who we discussed about pre discussed previously. Why do you call them the first amendment's greatest generation? Why did you choose them to be interviewed for this book? Uh, they were, here's the connection. The connection is all of them, other than Rick Jewell, who obviously had this close teaching connection, all of them had been nominators or judges uh, or recipients of the Hugh M. Hefner First Amendment Award, which was established by Christy Hefner in 1979. And so we have over 40 years of winners or people who've been involved. And uh, I went through the list. There were about 150 or so of people who have been involved. And I looked at a number of those people and realized these are seminal figures in terms of thinking and advocating on free press and free speech issues. And so that's how they were selected. And I didn't select them in terms of their age, but it turns out that all of them are in their 60s, 70s, or 80s. And that's why I call them the greatest generation, because they, they grew up in an era of great civil rights advocacy and anti-war advocacy and feminist advocacy. So to some extent, it's also a social history. You get to hear them talk about their history in terms of thinking about the First Amendment from their early days through the present. And all of them are still active on the front lines, thinking and influencing the next generation. So that's why I call them the greatest generation. Uh, and it's a perfect period to be able to capture them now while they're still around. Yeah, of course. And that was in part what I tried to do. I made a documentary about former ACLU executive director, Ira Glasser. I've got the movie poster there behind me was to try and cap capture 
the thought behind, and I've never called them the First Amendment's greatest generation, but I've always kind of called them old school civil libertarians, why they did what they did. And at the opening of the movie Mighty Ira, Ira revisits Ebbets Field, which was home of the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, a beloved team from him and his childhood. And he's approached by some young kids asking him who he is and what he's doing there. And uh, he gives them the story about Ebbets Field, which is no longer there. Uh, it's been plowed down and a, uh, a uh, apartment building is built on top of it. And after the conversation, he turns and he says, you know, how can you expect anyone to know this history if you never tell them? Uh, so that's why I really love the interviews of your book. And it's kind of the enterprise that I've embarked upon in this podcast as well with now going on 160 interviews, uh, to try and explain the history of why the first amendment's greatest generation or the old school civil libertarians did what they did and stood up for the principles they did, especially at a time where we've forgotten the origin of the first amendment and why it was so important to some of those early fights that we today greatly revere, whether it's uh, the women's rights movement, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, many of the social movements in the middle part of the 20th century that were controversial at the time, but are now much revered. And I love in your book, some of the early stories that you get from people like Nadine Strawson and Floyd Abrams, Floyd Abrams and Nadine both kind of came to free speech uh, interests through debate uh, early in their lives. Uh, Floyd, I think it was at Cornell, Nadine and mm-hmm. in, in her high school. Uh, and I, I love the story about the or the origin story of Bort, Bert Newborn as well. He was a tax attorney, uh, for rich people after being a labor, labor, uh, activist prior to that. And he just decided one day that I can't do this anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm essentially a hired hand for the people I loathe. And he went to go work for the ACLU and to the ACLU's credit, Bert told them, I knew nothing about you, uh, before this job interview or before I started preparing for this job interview. Um, and I'm assuming his interview was, you know, it was with the NYCLU. So it was probably in 1967. So that was probably with REA Nyer. Um, but there's, there's just some great stories here. When you take away lessons from the first amendment's greatest generation, what rises to the top in your mind? Well, one is that there's no orthodoxy. And I think what makes it really interesting, even though you could read each of these conversations individually, when you read it collectively, you see that there are disagreements, that not there's not just one orthodoxy about what the First Amendment means, how far free speech and free press protection should go. Uh, and so there's really an inner dialogue that's taking place in the book where individuals are disagreeing with each other and you get to sort of understand the basis of this, those disagreements. So Citizens United, for example, obviously there are reasonable arguments probably on both sides. And in order to understand them, you can see them through, for example, Floyd Abrams, who obviously was one of the people who argued for Citizens United. Uh, but then you have people like uh, Bert Newborn, who I think are much more skeptical of having unlimited money being able to support political speech. Uh, You see disagreements, or at least, uh, I guess, a range of opinions uh, with regard to campus speech. So you have someone like Jeff Stone, who obviously has been a critical figure in developing what is now called the Stone Report, 
the previous version was called the Calvin Report, developed at the University of Chicago. Yeah, also because, referred to as the Chicago Statement. Or the Chicago Statement. Uh, the, the basic idea, essentially, how should universities approach free speech issues? Uh, that, and obviously, fire has been really at the center of all this as well. But uh, there are about 70, 75 universities that have adopted this. One of the critical aspects of that is that the university should not take any particular positions. And when you hear from Nadine, Nadine said, well, wait a second, universities inherently do take positions. And so clearly there's nothing that conflicts with the First Amendment and having a university take positions in a variety of areas and yet still promote robust free speech on campus. What was... What were, I should say, some of the more surprising revelations uh, in the course of your interviews? I liked, for example, you were talking with David Cole, who's the legal director at the ACLU right now. You know, what issue seems to keep him awake at night? And then that first sentence, he says, I think campaign finance regulation is probably one of the most important questions that we need to get a handle on if we're going to save democracy from itself. But I really wish we dug in a little bit more there. What is that? Why does that keep him up at night because you hear about the tensions with the in the ACLU about its prior support for the Citizens United decision of course you know is is there something about that prior support that's keeping him up at night where does he stand I would have loved to have heard a little bit more about that was there anything like that in some of your other interviews that um, really stuck out to you well it was interesting when Nadine was talking about Citizens United she went back to her college days where she worked for Gene McCarthy. And Gene McCarthy was a rebel candidate. He was a senator from Minnesota who ran in 1968, essentially was probably the critical person who got Lyndon Johnson to decide that he was not going to run for reelection. And he was very, McCarthy was very much associated with the anti-war movement. He started a grassroots campaign and basically raised money in a period, obviously, before social media, where you needed to knock on doors and ask for $5. Uh, so I think Nadine's argument is that so much of campaign finance money today is not as critical in terms of having the big dollar contributions, because we've seen candidates like Bernie Sanders essentially build entire campaigns off of the five and 10 and $25 contributions with social media. So one of the issues about Citizens United is, is it as relevant today as it was at the time that it was argued? Because we've seen social media has really fostered an ability to get campaign financing. The other aspect, obviously, is once upon a time, candidates were committed to caps on money financing. And that really stopped with McCain and Obama. They decided that you couldn't survive on just federal money anymore. You needed to have private financing. So I, I think the days where we could rely on a government funding of political campaigns are over, which means that essentially we probably are going to have unlimited money flowing into the campaign. I guess the good news is that a lot of that money is no longer just the big dollar money, but a lot of it is the small dollar money, which could be aggregated. 
Yeah, and we should clarify on Citizens United, which has kind of become a catch-all for anything that anyone doesn't like about campaign finance, that at the center of that was a nonprofit organization, um, or maybe it was a 501c4. Anyway, they were producing a documentary about Hillary Correct. Clinton, and the, and the law that was subject to the litigation said that you can't do that within 60 or 90 days of election um, as a corporation. Uh, the impact being, of course, that you can't make movies, you can't publish books about a can candidate uh, around election time, which I think when people hear it in that context, they think, well, of course, the New York Times, for example, can endorse a candidate. Of course, you know, whoever can make a movie about a candidate around an election. Uh, and that's why Citizens United ended up, of course, prevailing. <laughs> I was like, what, what is the name of that organization that produced the documentary? And I'm like, it's there in the case name, Citizens United. Right. Um, and, that, and that's why there are reasonable arguments on both sides. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I the campaign finance discussion, I know people hate having it because it can be confusing. I find it somewhat fascinating because I like the outer edges of First Amendment law, right? When you work at when you work in it every day, you like those cutting edge questions that are, are difficult to answer. But I, I think you're right, you know, that it's a conversation that continues to evolve. So there's a continued conversation about how important is money in campaigns. Of course, it's important. But if it were the deciding factor, I would think Eric Cantor would have still been uh, in the United States Congress. Hillary Clinton would probably be president, uh, and the and the list go the list goes on and on. So there's something that stands between the money and the office, and that's the voter. And uh, if the message isn't resonating, well, and, I, and 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 hopefully that's what I want the book to do, which is also not just to have people read conversations, but begin their own conversations, begin to talk about some of the ideas that are in the book, because I think they raise a number of interesting conversations, obviously of contemporary importance. Yeah. And that's what we just kind of did with the offshoot on campaign finance. I want to talk a little bit before we close up here about journalism. Uh, you know, I read in the book and I, I must've recalled this from American Playboy, the, uh, Amazon series, uh, he, Hefner was a student journalist. Is that correct? Yes, he was. Right. And how did that influence him? Uh, I, I I think greatly. Uh, again, you know, he decided he wanted to start a magazine. So uh, in order to do that, it's not just a business enterprise. You're starting something which is uh, a journalistic enterprise. Well, what was he? Who was? What was he doing before that? Was he in journalism before that? Uh, he had worked for Esquire magazine before that. Okay. Gotcha. And so, so he had uh, immediately after college, you know, begun in the publishing field, uh, worked on his college, I think it was a literary or college humor magazine, worked on his high school newspaper. So uh, a lot of people, obviously, who become great First Amendment advocates are people who started out relatively young. I started working on my high school newspaper and worked in college radio and everything else. So you get a sense while you're doing that of how important it is to be able to express and cover the news and do everything else. So I, I think that clearly that influenced him as well. I mean, in the magazine, there was also investigative journalism. I think people forget about that, but there were major pieces that were also commissioned to do what we would call classic investigative journalism. And so th this was something that he really believed in as well. And in particular, getting back to students, the importance of student journalists to be able to cover things that 
were happening in their high school or their college because so much of student journalism has been overseen by teachers and administrators who don't want to be embarrassed. And so they don't want the student journalists to cover anything which might essentially put the school or the teacher in a bad light. And over the years, there have been a number of cases that have litigated. Obviously, there are organizations like the Student Press Law Center, which have helped defend student journalists. And some of the people who have been awarded the First Amendment Award by the Hefter Foundation have been people who have been at the front lines of promoting greater uh, access and greater rights for student journalists. And in fact, there are now some state laws, particularly a state like North Dakota, which you might not expect, which has one of the most uh, strong protections for student journalists now. And of course, we've seen a number of teachers and administrators who've been courageous enough to stand up and say, we think our students should be able to cover, fill in the blank, whatever that issue was. Uh, I experienced that when I was in high school as a student journalist, when we were covering things like demonstrations uh, or controversies in the school. Clearly, there were administrators who said, we don't want that. But I had some courageous advisors and teachers who said, we're willing to back you up. So student journalism remains an important and vital area, particularly now because it's no longer just print journalism. Obviously, schools have websites, student journalists use video and audio, podcasts, everything else. So uh, it's an area that he felt very deeply about and I think has been reflected in the awards and clearly in terms of what he tried to promote throughout his life. Yeah. And what do you think his enduring legacy will be? The subtitle for your book book is The Enduring Legacy of Free Speech and Free Press Values. And what is Hefner's legacy and contribution to those? Besides, of course, the Hefner Awards, which have been going on for decades now and have really done a great job of recognizing, in some cases, the unrecognized or uh, not sufficiently recognized work of the people who are the boots on the ground defending First Amendment values? Well, I think that's part of it. And I think everything that flows from that, uh, clearly we see now in terms of cinema and movies, we see uh, just this flowering of creative energy and un unrestricted content. What's interesting in the discussion with Rick Jewell, who was teaching film censorship, in a way he was nostalgic and said, maybe the older days were better when we had a little bit of censorship, not in terms of the First Amendment, but in terms of how it might have stimulated greater creativity because it forced people who were making movies to essentially not be totally out front with everything, but to have a little bit of nuance and innuendo, which audiences could pick up on. So I, I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, but in, in, in terms of the legacy, uh, I think clearly what we see is this legacy, first of all, in the awards. The awards are an incredibly important legacy, not just for the people who won them, but the idea of recognizing people from all walks of life who stand up 
and promote and advance First Amendment values. So when you look at the list of the award winners, which are also included in the book, at least the first 40 years, you see teachers, you see government whistleblowers, you see obviously entertainment figures, you see journalists, you see lawyers. And so people from all walks of life are people who can promote the First Amendment. And I think everyone who reads the book or appreciates what's in the book is essentially is essentially endorsing the notion that they too can be an advocate for greater free speech and free press. Yeah, as you note, the award winners are at the end of your book. You can also learn more about them at hmhfoundation.org. And in 2020, I should note, Ira Glasser, who was the subject, of course, of my film, Mighty Ira, won the Lifetime Achievement Award. Was there an award last year for 2021? Uh, There wasn't. There will be in the fall. And as I think it notes right at the beginning, the awards have basically been every year, but there have been a few years where they haven't been awarded. But Yeah, uh, it does note that awards are not always presented annually. Right. But uh, clearly there will be awards this fall again. And so that process continues and will continue in the future. Yeah. And I've, I've had a, some of our listeners will recall, I've had Christy Hefner on the podcast. I think I had her on in 2020 to talk about the awards. So if you're interested in learning more about the awards uh, and Christy's career, you can, of course, visit that podcast. Well, Stuart, uh, I really appreciate you doing this and taking the time. And of course, writing the book, I encourage all of our listeners to check it out. The First Amendment Lives On, Conversations Commemorating Hugh M. Hefner's Legacy of Enduring Free Speech and Free Press Values. So thanks for coming on the show. I hope to do it again sometime soon. I do too. I had a great time. Thanks, Nico. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We also take email feedback at so to speak at thefire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, as I ask you every other week, please consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. They do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening. Mm-hmm.